Welcome to Rethink, the future of skilled nursing. I'm your host, Alex Banco. Before we start today's episode, I'd like to invite you to explore custom content solutions from Skilled Nursing News. In these uncertain times, it's never been more important to provide accurate and timely information to leaders in the post-acute and long-term care industry. At Skilled Nursing News, we can deliver your message directly to the decision makers, from sponsored webinars to white papers to custom Q&A features. Visit skillednursingnews.com advertising to learn more. As a weary nation looks ahead to some kind of new normal, nursing homes remain in the heat of battle against COVID-19. And in many cases, they're fighting without sufficient access to testing and personal protective equipment. Those stresses will only worsen as the federal government and states look to reopen their economies and gradually end the mandatory social distancing measures that have been in place since mid-March. Leading Age President and CEO Katie Smith Sloan has been an outspoken critic of the government's response to the coronavirus in nursing homes and other care settings. When CMS Administrator Seema Verma announced a framework for lifting visitation bans, Sloan and Leading Age described the plan as not grounded in reality. I wanted to speak with Sloan about the concrete needs nursing homes have now, as well as her vision for the future of aging in America post-COVID, including where lawmakers and advocates should focus the widespread calls for some kind of reform. Please keep in mind that this interview was recorded on the morning of Tuesday, May 19th, and thus reflects what we knew about the coronavirus situation as of that time. Here's our conversation. Good morning, Katie. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, so the timing couldn't have been better for this interview. We're talking right now the morning after CMS unveiled its plan for reopening nursing homes, you know, as that becomes possible. And I wanted to start there. You and your organization have been very outspoken about the support and lack thereof, rather, that nursing homes and other senior care facilities have gotten during this pandemic. How realistic are these reopening plans that CMS just rolled out? Obviously, they're multi tiered, the states have a lot of leeway. How realistic are these plans as nursing homes, you know, continue to face day-to-day struggles and day-to-day problems with just getting the stuff that they need? Yeah, well, I would just say at the outset that we do want to have a plan to safely reopen nursing homes, but there are just too many homes out there and other aging services providers that are still desperately in need of testing and personal protective equipment. And without those, it is virtually impossible to reopen nursing homes safely. We don't know when it's coming, but we need to make sure that that happens. And what about Seema Verma's assertion? And, you know, this has actually come up twice on our end. I asked her this question during a press call last week, and also uh, our reporter Maggie Flynn asked her the same question or a similar question uh, during the press conference yesterday. But what do you say to her assertion that there is enough testing? You know, I I asked her, and obviously I hear from providers all around the country, that no access is slow, even in states like New York, which have mandated very aggressive testing protocols. You know, there are backlogs at labs, People can't get the testing supplies. How would you respond to the administrator's assertion that, yes, there's plenty of testing, and even in some states, some states rather, there's excess supply? Well, um, my response to that is that we're, that's not what we're seeing, and that's not what we're hearing from our members. I think there's some geographic disparities in terms of access to testing, but there's also a lack of access to testing with quick results. So if you have a test and you have to send it away and don't get the results back for three or four days, you're in limbo for three or four days with staff. So I just keep hearing over and over again from our members that getting access to testing with quick results is not an easy thing. It's it's expensive to test staff. Uh, members telling me they're paying 110, 130 
$6 per test per staff. Now that's daily, weekly, with the CMS guidance. In New York, it's twice a week uh, from the governor with the governor's guidance. And we don't have a plan for who's going to pay for that. Yeah. Have you heard... So it's an uh, access issue, and it's a cost issue. It's both. It's really, you know, it's an access issue. It's access to tests that get quick turnaround, and then it's just a cost issue when it comes to staff. Exactly. And we still have not really seen dedicated relief for long-term care providers, for even Medicaid providers. You know, a lot of the relief that we've seen so far has been concentrated mostly around Medicare. Is there any sense of when the relief could be coming, you know, in terms of Medicaid-based relief, in terms of specific long-term care relief? I know your organization and others have been very vocal about this, you know, calling for specific cash outlays for nursing homes, assisted living. When do you expect that that might be coming down the pike? And why do you think that hasn't happened yet? I mean, it's, we all know the problem by this point. If you, if you're, if you don't know the problem, clearly you're never going to understand it. So when do you think we'll see the relief and why do you think it's taken so long to get it? Well, the answer to your first question, which is when is, I don't know, but I can't come soon enough. I think the problem is that they, that HHS has not figured out a way to efficiently get the money in the hands of providers. And, you know, because the Medicare providers, they all know who they are. They pay them anyway. They know where their bank accounts are. They can wire the money. But with Medicaid providers and other providers, assisted living, for example, the administration doesn't have that uh, data readily available. And they've wanted desperately to avoid an application process. Uh, that's what they've been telling us. So they're looking for a an efficient way of getting the money out some kind of a workaround, and clearly have not been able to figure out what that is. In the meantime, you know, our providers are hanging on by their fingernails trying to, you know, keep their organizations afloat. I think that's just a great metaphor and a great, you know, it's a great anecdote that really illustrates what I think is the bigger problem that we should be talking about as a country is that the state of senior care funding is so fractured and so convoluted. You know, they can't even figure out in the midst of a pandemic how to logistically get cash to the operators that need it. And I think it really highlights one of the big you know, issues that we're looking at is that there are 50 different state programs for paying for senior care. There's all these overlapping jurisdictions and overlapping funding sources and regulatory sources. You know, as we look to move past this, obviously, we're nowhere near out of the woods. But I did want to talk a little bit about what you kind of see for the future and where those reform efforts should come. Obviously, we're hearing a ton about reform. Do you think that this might be able to push us to kind of have a more unified system just based on the lessons we're learning here? I mean, I hope they will. But do you get the sense that maybe these issues that we're seeing here could actually spur some fundamental reform? Well, you know, with in any national crisis like this, you've got to look for the silver lining. And that, to me, is the silver lining in all of this, is, is if we can have a serious conversation about how to create and build a less fragmented, more integrated system to provide services and, and supports to older adults, not just residential, but home-based care as well and home-based services as well. Because right now, you know, not only is it fragmented from a finance point of view, a regulatory point of view, but just imagine a consumer trying to navigate this complicated system. Not, It's not even a system. It's a complicated array of services and to try to figure out what is best for themselves or their loved ones at any time. You know, aging is, it's not linear, right? Everybody's aging experience is different. And so it's really important to have choice. It's really important to have an array of services. And it's really important to be able to figure out 
how to get access to those and how to pay for them. So my hope is that this pandemic will lead us into that kind of serious conversation that we should have had decades ago, and we haven't. Yeah, you know, that is that is my big fear. You know, obviously for my job, I read a lot of news coverage of nursing home issues throughout the country. And, and I've really tried to emphasize, at least in our coverage here, that we, we really cannot follow the same blueprint that we've always followed in terms of scandals around nursing homes and senior living, right? You know, the kind of blame cycle, there's a hearing, people get fined, and then you know, we all just move away and we forget that it exists. You know, I feel like this is really revealing that no one really thinks about these issues until there's a problem. And that in part, I think, really led to where we are today. Yeah, I think that's right. And particularly with nursing homes, you know, we're we're living in a, with a regulatory system that was created in 1987. And over 30 years ago, nursing homes looked different than they do today. The people who live in nursing homes and are served by nursing homes are different than they are today. And yet we have not taken a hard look at whether we have a regulatory system that actually supports today's reality and can prepare us uh, for the future. So we have for, for a long time been calling for a deep review and taking a hard look at what are we trying to achieve with our regulations of nursing homes and are we doing that with the system we have in place? I would argue we aren't. It's a very punitive system. It's not one that fosters quality, which is really what ultimately we all want. And so it's time for a, to, a, not just a refresh, it's really a rethink and a reevaluation of how we regulate nursing homes. Hopefully that's something that will come out of this as well. Yeah. And, you know, obviously in your position, you know, what would you let's if if you were, you know, if you get a seat on that uh, presidential or White House you know, commission on nursing home quality, what are the kind of things that you would want to advocate for? And then, you know, maybe we can even take it a step further. If you were given carte blanche to kind of redesign the system from scratch, what are some of the areas that you think we should focus on, both based on the lessons that we've learned from the coronavirus crisis and then in general, those things that you've been calling for and that you as as an observer and as a leader in the space have wanted for years? Well, I think, you know, certainly one of them is is just really the emphasis on culture and and person-centered care in nursing homes and making sure that we can have a system that facilitates that. Second is really focusing on who works in nursing homes, our, you know, our heroic frontline workers who are you know, right now risking and sometimes losing their lives. But we have for a long time paid them too little, recognized them too little. We need to professionalize the people who work in nursing homes because they're special people that are doing amazing work. And yet, you know, I think as a country, as a, as we just haven't given them their due and we need to do that. The third is we need to pay nursing homes for what they do. You know, that Medicaid certainly doesn't cover the cost of care, and particularly in some states. And there's just a huge gap between what is expected to provide quality care for somebody who's in a nursing home on Medicaid and what the Medicaid rate covers. So we, as a result of that, uh, our members who are nonprofits, you know, they end, you end up diversifying services, but you also end up doing a lot of fundraising to try to meet that gap. We shouldn't have to do that. We should be able to, we should be paying for what we value, which is quality care in nursing homes. And then I think that the whole issue of how we pay for long-term care in this country needs to be take it needs to be given a hard look. You know, now it's family pocketbooks and when you run out of money, then it's Medicaid. And Medicaid was never designed to be the deductible. 
at all for our family pocketbooks are never designed to be the deductible for Medicaid. So we need to really take a look at how are we going to help now that we've got growing numbers of older people. We know that 50% of them are going to need long-term services and supports. How do we pay for that as a nation? How do we demonstrate that we actually value older adults and are willing to pay for the services and supports they need so that they can live a life of purpose? Yeah, I think that's that's a huge point that, you know, as someone uh, who is not old enough to require those services, I don't have parents in that situation, but, you know, covering this industry and coming into it, I was very surprised to learn just about the way, the, the sort of fractured structure and the way that Medicaid has sort of over the years become this de facto payment structure. And I feel like not too many people know about that, you know, unless you're working in the industry or you have a parent or a loved one in that situation. And again, I think that goes to this idea that senior care, you know, whether it's nursing homes, assisted living, memory care, home health, it's something that you don't think about unless there's a huge problem, whether it's personal or national like this. And I think that we're seeing, I think we're kind of, in a lot of ways, we as a country, I think are reaping what we've sown for so many years. I think that's right. And I think, you know, I think the other thing that's coming out of this is that how little people understand what a nursing home actually is and where it fits into the healthcare system. I mean, I think we've been sort of the stepchild of that system for a long time. But really understanding that a nursing home is a home. People live there. They live there for a period of time. And they develop deep relationships with the staff that work there. It's not a place to go and, you know, three days stay and you're out. It is a place where people go and they live for some period of time. And I think that that is not well understood. Yeah. And I think you hit on a good point there where it does kind of exist in this weird space, you know, between housing and healthcare. You know, I always think that it's interesting that on the for-profit side, you know, with a lot of the investments, it gets lumped in a lot of times, you know, the SNFs is usually how they refer to it on that side, exclusively not nursing homes. And they get lumped in with senior living when they really are two completely different models. And the average nursing home does kind of straddle the line, right? You know, because of the way the payment structure works, you can't really build, you know, you can't really operate a Medicaid-only long-term care facility very easily. So, you know, you offer that short-term stay. Uh, You offer that Medicare-funded service to help subsidize the Medicaid side. But, you know, because it sits on that weird balance between, I think people don't know how to categorize it. And I think that also adds to the complication of, well, how do we pay for it? And you realize, well, there's actually two funding sources. And on the one hand, you know, on the Medicare side, the government with PDPM is really pushing operators to become more like hospitals and become more like mini, you know, step-down, acute, subacute units. Whereas mm-hmm. that's, I think that's still ignoring the fact that, you know, most of the people there in nursing homes are long-term. So do you yeah, think exactly. that, yeah, so do we need to maybe split that model? Is it time that we completely redesign? You know, is the idea that nursing home, uh, you know, as a concept is outdated and we should have maybe two new formats? I think it's time for that conversation. I absolutely do. And I think this the crisis is putting a fine point on it. But I think, yeah, what we have today, it's not necessarily working. So we really do need to relook at the model. And then I think you throw in, you know, telehealth. So you know, telehealth is now, you know, it's a genius out of the bottle, right, with telehealth now. And so what does that mean for the delivery of health care and services to older adults? Will more people be receiving care in their homes with support from home health as opposed to a nursing home? How will that play out? And I think we, we don't know, but I think it is a game changer. Yeah. Do you think you know, in your in your perspective and in your work, you know, with advocacy and, and, and working on the Hill, do you think there is going to be political will 
behind this conversation beyond just punishing the bad actors. You know, again, I, I feel like I keep saying that, but that is one of my big, I'm going to be really be concerned about this, someone who covers the industry and someone who just generally cares about the elderly and, you know, and aging in America. Do you think that there is a will to have these difficult conversations? Because obviously it's really easy for us to talk about all these solutions, but it would require an act of Congress. It would require multiple pieces of legislation and, you know, a complete reimagining of, of the status quo. It, do you think that maybe coming out of this, that's something that we could even start to begin to tackle? Well, it's a good question. And, you know, up to now we have not had the political will. And I think when you have that and you don't, and you have, you know, just frankly, a, a, a lot of ageism that you can't even start that conversation. The only way I think we're going to get to the point of having political will is if a lot of older people don't make it through this crisis and people begin to realize that we've lost an entire generation and that's not right. And that's not the country that we want to be part of. And we need to relook at our values as a country and what, what we want to invest in. Because right now I think it's, you know, it's, let's get through this. Let's get the economy running. Let's get through this. And then we'll put it all behind us. And that's going to, that's not going to lead to tangible solutions. So we're, you know, trying to keep track of all the data that we can and, and, you know, figure out how to make the right arguments. But, you know, what we're dealing with now, I think, is a confluence of ageism and lack of public policy. Exactly. And I think we are at a really critical point now where we, you know, there's really a decision to be made, you know, just as a society and also by individual lawmakers. You know, do you want to be reactive or do you want to be partially reactive and mostly proactive, which I think, you know, I think we would agree is probably the best solution moving forward is to have those, you know, yes, you know, put in new uh, oversight, new regulatory things that we've learned based on this pandemic, punish the people who truly were negligent, but that can't be it. It has to be more, you know, we're just going to, I'm of the opinion that we're going to just going to barrel through something, barrel towards something like this exactly the same if we don't have, you know, really proactive change. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, for us, it's figuring out when will people have the appetite to have that conversation, when will they have the headspace to be able to begin to think beyond the, you know, sort of the immediate crisis. And it's not, you know, it's a healthcare crisis and now we've got the economy on top of it. So, you know, there's a lot of things that we have to wade through in order to be able to create the space for that conversation, but it's essential. Yeah. And for my last question, I did want to try to highlight some good news. You know, obviously the whole nation has been under a ton of stress, you know, covering this industry has not been easy with all of the stories of death and, you know, and confusion and struggle. But I, you know, there is a lot of good work going on in senior living, nursing homes, uh, home health all across the continuum. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to highlight some of the positive things that you're seeing and, you know, some of the, some of the praise that you wanted to give to your, to the industry and to the people uh, who are working day in and day out on the front lines. Well, thank you for that. And it's, it is absolutely inspiring to talk to members and hear what they're doing to navigate this crisis. The staff that show up for work every day, knowing that they're putting their lives at risk, the relationships that they've built with the residents and the, and the, actually the, you know, the grieving that they're doing when they lose those, those relationships. The, the constant pivoting every day brings a new set of guidance, challenges, difficulties, and every day the leaders in our member organizations are having to rethink what they do and how they do it and who they do it with. And I've never seen such fortitude, such determination, and such compassion 
they desperately are trying to do the right thing. And what the right thing is in the time of a crisis seems to change all the time. Standards of care are changing, partly because of guidance from the federal government, partly because of the reality that they're in. So that kind of agility is a sight to behold. And I have nothing but enormous admiration for the work they're doing. And I think the challenge for them is, you know, there's no end in sight. They're waiting for the net. You know, they know they are expecting a second wave. So it's not like this is all just going to end on July 4th. This is the, the new normal for a period of time. And I think just cr- creates an enormous amount of stress and strain. And, and I admire them for being able to keep their heads up and their eyes focused on, on what's most important, which is keeping their, their staff, their residents safe and healthy. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great place to end off. I really appreciate you taking the time today. I know you must be incredibly busy with everything that's going on. And and, and just in closing, just from all of us at Skilled Nursing News, Aging Media Network, thanks so much to you and your members for what you're doing on the ground level. You know, I always tell people that I, I, have, I have the easy job. I get to sit at home and, and call people and talk, but you guys are actually on the ground. So thank you so much for all of the work that you're doing. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. All right. All right. Take care. Take care. Uh-huh. You Bye. too. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Rethink, the future of skilled nursing. For more news and insights on the skilled nursing industry, subscribe to our daily or weekly newsletters at skillednursingnews.com. I'm Alex Banco, and this has been a production of Aging Media Network, Chicago, Illinois.